If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. See, someone want to catch the AC there? Often when I'm driving down the street, I come to a stoplight, I have a habit of looking over at the people <laughs> next to me, try to park and try to do it in such a way where they can't see that I'm looking at them. <laughs> but... And and then I do the same thing when I'm walking around the stores and I I notice the countenances of many people. I see a lot of anger. I see frustration. I I actually see fear these days. And I I think about the peace that I personally am experiencing that though there are times and moments throughout the day that I that there's apprehension, there's Tense tension. There's there's that urgency to get something done. My overall rest and peace is just amazing, despite what's going on. And I've I've often wondered why why is it is this expression or these various expressions on the faces of the people that I see. And I think a lot of it has to it comes down to not really understanding who they are, what's available to them. They don't understand their purpose. If you follow the humanistic thought, your purpose isn't very much more than anything else. You're just part of the ooze that crawled out of the ocean and became something. You're actually here by accident. There's no real purpose for your life. And nothing could be further from the truth. And this, But this is what people embrace. The suicide rates are escalating, especially through this season of weirdness that we're going through. And there's people, the people are living without hope. They don't see that the future can be any different than what they've experienced in the past, and they are willing to just throw the towel in. And why does it really matter? Well, it does matter. It really does matter. God does have purpose. We're going to see that this morning. Finding the purposes of God. For the believer, it's so critical that we understand, number one here, the, the timing of God's kingdom building. We see, Lord, uh, later on in the passage here, as we begin in ch- verse 14, uh, actually, yeah, verse, yeah, verse four, we're going to pick it up in verse 14, looking at the timing of God's kingdom building, God's personal calling for you. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Your purpose is bound up in God's calling upon your life. Why he created you and what job he has for you to do. And number three, the authority that God has given to you to do it. We lack nothing. It's all been preordained and prepared for us if we're willing to embrace it and to walk in it. So Father, we ask that you'd bless your word to us now in Jesus' name. In verse 14 of Mark's gospel, we read, Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the way of the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further uh, from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. And then when he had come into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, and he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Now there was a man there in this synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. 
that when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? <laughs> what authority he commands even the unclean spirits? And they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. And so we see here in these paragraphs, these three paragraphs, God's timing, God's calling, and the authority that he gives to those who have been called by him to do his work. Verses 14 and 15 give us the timing for which Jesus would now begin his earthly ministry. Uh, Two things are initially mentioned here at the outset of his ministry. One was the timing, and two, what was available to the people. The time is fulfilled. That perfect timing for Jesus' ministry. Everything that needed to be done is done. Two, what was available now to God's people that had previously been withheld, that was not available to him prior to this. It was now, after this 400-year period of silence from the prophets, now something special is becoming available to his people. Once you hear the message of the gospel or the word of God, those who hear that message acquire in a responsibility to respond to it and to obey it. As Jesus said in Luke twelve forty eight, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Every one of us has a personal task assigned to us. It's a job that only you individually can do. Now many of you have heard this before. I have to keep repeating it because sometimes we have to hear it and we understand the words, but we don't really hear it. We don't grasp the significance of the message. So God repeats it. Sometimes we need to hear it over and over for it to begin to settle in so that it can, can become a part of who we are. And so each one of us has been uniquely created and equipped for the work that God has prepared for us. The question is, will we take the time to spend before God to inquire of Him as to what that work really is? What is it that task that He's assigned to us individually to accomplish? The time here, that's word, uh, the, the word that's used here for time is keros. He means a favorable, opportune, or significant time. Jesus referred to this time uh, here, it was a a time of fulfillment. It was a season. The time of preparation for the nation of Israel. The ministry of John the Baptist were all now complete. The divinely appointed season had come. The prophecies concerning Messiah were about to be fulfilled. Now, for you and me, we, when we think of time, we normally think chronologically or linear in regards to time. You know, I was born on such and such date, and I lived here and there, and, you know, and I, you know, I did this growing up, and we sort of, you know, start, when we start looking back over our life, we have this chronological order, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how we think. But this, this is not a linear concept here. The word uh, keros is not. It, it, is, it is a point of time. It is a season when something special or an occasion is coming about. So since John had fulfilled his mission, the religious and the political scenes were all set. This was Yahweh's special occasion to bring the Savior of the world forth. The Bible tells us in Psalm 110, in regard to all this, the Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God had sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Just like it was the perfect time for Jesus to come on the scene, so you were born and ordained to live at this point in time in history. 
No, I, you know, if we had to choose, we probably would have chose a different time in history. I would have personally liked to have been, you know, on the shores of Galilee watching Jesus minister. I would think that would have been a, a, just an incredible thing to be part of the ministry of Jesus. That wasn't what God ordained for me or you. We're here 20 centuries later, right? So Jesus' ministry, he came proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. The idea of at hand is that it is approached. It is now here. And when we think about the kingdom of God, which is sort of interchangeable with uh, the kingdom of heaven, they're sort of you know, interchangeable terms, if, if some of you are wondering. But the word that's used for kingdom of God uh, has two principal meanings that we need to understand, and it's very simple, actually. It's the king's rule, number one, his reign, his dominion, his authority. And then also it refers to the territory or the people in which he reigns over. And when, as we think about the kingdom of heaven, he says it's here, it's available, it's now. And yet, what has been going on for the last 20 centuries? Anything but, as we would look at it from the physical level, the horizontal level, we look at human history and think, the kingdom of God is here, you've got to be joking. I mean, look at the, the wars, look at the, the torments, the things that have gone on over human history the last centuries are is an incredible a lot of pain a lot of suffering so what is, what does he mean that the kingdom of god is here it is at hand well the kingdom of heaven is is explained to us best this way it's it's a kingdom that is already but not yet and that's no that sounds sort of like double speak but it's not it's already here but not in its fullness. Already means that it's available inwardly and spiritually speaking. That's how it is available now. If you'll put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll experience the kingdom of heaven now, presently. We come under the rule and dominion of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings, and I joyfully submit to His rule. He's the best of the best. And Jesus put it this way in regards to the already aspect of it. He said, but we, I, with the finger of God, do cast out devils. No doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it is here. Those who have lived from Jesus on up to this very moment who have not experienced the kingdom of God, it is, it is incumbent upon, it's on them. It can be experienced. It can be witnessed, as many have witnessed it over the centuries. Paul preached the spiritual nature of the kingdom as well, referring to this reign of God inwardly. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Spirit, Romans fourteen seventeen. It is the inner work of God's Spirit within the human heart. It is the power, it is the authority, and the message of this kingdom that Jesus brought to us and was demonstrated in his earthly ministry. He started it, and it continues to this day, right through the present church age. Jesus told the apostles, look, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And to you, referring to his disciples. I give to you the keys of the kingdom. Keys represent authority. This is so critical for you and I to understand. I got to be honest with you. I struggle with that authority in the sense that we have the ability to command things. That authority, you know, as parents, we have the, the, the position given to us as parents to command our children, hey, son, this is what you're going to do. As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord, and if this is how we, this is how we're going to live. That's we don't question that. We don't com commit, question the, that a parent has total command and and authority over the household, children especially. It's to be done in love, tender consideration, gentleness, but it's still a position of authority. Now, what comes to 
the spiritual things of the kingdom, we sort of, I get a little uncomfortable with that. You mean I can command things to be? You know, I've seen this stuff abused, Lord. I'm sort of taken back by it. I'm giving you the authority. And so how do we see that operate in the apostles? They go up to the temple after the day of Pentecost. And there's this lame guy there at the the gate. And Peter senses something going on inside. The inner workings of the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God is at work within Peter. And he senses there's faith. Silver and gold have I none, but what I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. That is the exercise of the authority. Let's not get hung up on the words. Just understand that this is the reality that we live in. We need to understand that. The kingdom of God is here already, but not yet in its fullness. There's that not yet factor that we need to take in consideration. The future kingdom will come in its fullness when the king returns. Hallelujah. How many of you looking forward to the return of the king? (laughs) Come quickly, Lord Jesus. He will come and return and reign outwardly, physically. We'll see. It will be no longer walking by faith. It will be by sight, and the king sets up his kingdom. He will fulfill at that point the remaining Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and his relationship with the nation of Israel. I don't know about you, but the Bible tells us that the church will inherit the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom of God. The church is actually the instrument that God is using presently to build the kingdom of God, to bring in more and more citizens, as it were, into his kingdom. Think about that for a moment. You and I are going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite an inheritance, isn't it? Some of you might feel like you've gotten ripped off this side of heaven. Well, don't worry about that. Don't even think. Don't even give it a second thought. It's all going to burn anyway, right? (laughs) How big an ash heap do you need, right? (laughs) Praise the Lord. What an inheritance is waiting for you on the other side. Doesn't your heart just yearn to live in the fullness of God's presence, the fullness of his power, to have all these insecurities and all these faults and failures that we deal with daily, weekly, to be just gone. To just not live in a cursed world with a fallen nature. That'll be heaven in and of itself, won't it? To be freed from the effects of the curse. Well, I can tell you right now, that day is rapidly approaching. We need to ready ourselves for it. And how do we do that? With the hearing of the gospel message, there then becomes a responsibility for the hearer. You must believe the gospel. You must believe the good news. You must turn from sin in order to enter the kingdom of God. So the two things that are required are very simple here. This is not hard stuff. Little children understand it. You should understand this. When you hear the the good news of the kingdom of God, there are two things that are required. And what I mean by the gospel is the good news that there's forgiveness of sin and there's salvation through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. Jesus lived, died, was buried, rose again, and is coming back. That is the gospel in a nutshell. In hearing the gospel, you must, number one, repent. Metaneo, to reconsider, to turn, to change your mind. This involves a complete change of thought in attitude with regard to sin and what righteousness really is. Now, the Bible's got plenty of illustrations about repentance. Most of us understand that, but for for the sake of those who might not totally get it, we have the illustration of the tax collector who repented. It doesn't mean that he stopped collecting taxes, he just stopped collecting more than the state required him to collect. Okay, he he changed his behavior. Job, we know, repented from his self-pity and his despair and hopelessness and his attitude towards God that wasn't all that it needed to be. David repented from his sin with Bathsheba. Moral failure, he repented of it. The prodigal son repented of his riotous living and all. 
And hopefully this morning you've repented. You've turned from whatever was controlling you. Whatever sin is, had been dominating your life, you turned from it and asked God for forgiveness and His power to overcome it. Can you look back over your life, chronologically, in that sense, and can you remember a time that you turned in your experience, you changed the way you were thinking, and the way you were living, You can't remember a time in your life when you changed your behavior, changed your attitude and the way you were thinking about your sin, your lifestyle, your attitude towards God, then you need to do that. You really haven't repented. You're actually living in self-righteousness. There's many kind of, there are many kind of people that feel like they don't really need forgiveness of sin. They believe that they're good people. You know, they were raised in a Christian home. Their parents were religious. They never crossed the bounds. They never broke the rules. They obeyed mom and dad regularly. So they consider themselves worthy of heaven. Most people have this concept that if they live good lives and they're good people, that when they die, the default position is to go to heaven. And this is a deception, unfortunately. I wish it were that way, but it's not. The default position is separation from God forever in a place Jesus called hell. Matthew seven, thirteen and 14. Jesus put it this way. Enter in by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There's a way that... There, there are many that go by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few that find it. As I said, there are many people who believe they're good enough to merit heaven. They believe that their moral behavior is sufficient. So that when they stand before God, they'll say, well, I was a good person. I avoided all the major sins. You know, I didn't murder anybody. I never committed adultery. I never lusted after women. I never, you know, chased men, blah, blah, blah whatever that list might be that they have in their hearts. These people do not understand that perfect moral excellence, perfect moral excellence is what is required by God to enter His presence. That's the only way you can enter into the kingdom of God. And there's only one person that has ever lived on this earth that achieved perfect moral excellence and lived a sinless life. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. All other human beings, from Adam all the way to the end of this age, have fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody has lived perfectly in moral excellence before God. Nobody has fulfilled all that is required by God to enter into his presence. And of course, the Lord knows that. He knew that. He's well aware of that. That's why there was a need for salvation and redemption. So he himself became a man and would pay the price, perform substitutionary sacrifice for those who had sin, for those who would be honest enough with themselves that they knew that they had sinned and needed forgiveness. Jesus Christ paid that debt that mankind owed on Calvary's cross in a, in, in a succinct way of saying it. Jesus became what I am so that I could become what he is. Jesus took on my sin, suffered the judgment of God, that he might build in part to me his righteousness to give me, as it were, a ticket to get into glory. The gift of righteousness is the ticket. It's a gift. If you'll humble yourself as a child, confess your sin to God, your shortcomings, your failures. If you'll just simply ask God for forgiveness, He will forgive. He will wash you perfectly clean in His sight. He will extend to you this ticket, this undeserved gift of righteousness. It's your ticket. It's my ticket to paradise. Remember the thief on the cross. He didn't have time to run out and do moral rehab. 
He didn't have time to go out and perform good works. He realized that in the initially hanging on the tree, complaining to Jesus, even mocking him along with his other partner in crime. But he came to his senses, his senses there. And he realized that Jesus was an innocent man. And then he realized he was more than just a man, but he was God. Lord, please forgive me. You know, it was remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all God's looking for. Just any way, any excuse he can find, so to speak, to let people off the hook and forgive them of their sins. God is not reluctant to forgive people their sins. He's wanting to. He desires to. But he won't do it without being asked. In sincerity, by the way. Luke twenty three forty records this in regards to that testimony. But the other answering rebuked, saying, Don't you even fear God, seeing that we're under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, but we, for we will receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, no doubt about it, this is going to happen, okay? I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Just remember that God is not reluctant to forgive. He's wanting to because he understands the destructive nature of sin. He knows the damage that it causes to the human heart, the soul and the spirit and the psyche of man. He wants people to be forgiven and washed. So there is this repentance. There must be a change. There must be a turning to God in order for them and a person to enter into the kingdom of God. Secondly, we must believe. You must believe the good news. You mean I can just ask God to forgive me and he will? Yeah. That sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But it's, that's why they call it the good news. It is great. Praise God. But faith is an interesting word. In fact, in the Jewish mindset, it's different, way different than our Western culture. The word faith, the Hebrew word is imuna, which is less about knowing and more about doing. It's an action word, actually. It means to take firm action. That's what faith means to the Hebrew mind and in the Old Testament. Faith means you're going to act. It is to act. It's like a staircase. You may intellectually know that that staircase leads up to the higher level, to the next level. But until you climb the steps, you won't experience the next level. So it's more important to do than to know. It's not just believe in the staircase. You have to climb the staircase. It's not just to believe that Jesus existed, believe that he died on the cross, but to embrace what he has done and repent. Turn to him. Ask for forgiveness. To, you can't just intellectually believe that Jesus Christ is there, that he's real, but you must receive him as a person into your life, as your Lord and Savior, if you want to enter the kingdom of God. God is in the building of kingdom building. That's his plan, his purpose. But also has a, a personal calling upon you. These next two points will move a little bit quicker. Verses 16 through 20 shows us the personal calling that God has for you. Many of us are personally aware of our accountability and responsibility before God. We understand that we're created in the image of God and that that's more of a status than it is a description of mankind. We have a tremendous responsibility placed upon us to represent God on, while we are on this earth. The stewardship of the earth was delegated to man. Take dominion, tend it and till it. To the degree that we obey that command and, and do our jobs is to the degree that we will glorify God. And we are held accountable, accountable to God for that work. I'm not responsible to 
fix the whole planet. That's why actually God told Adam and Eve, have lots of kids because it's a big planet and there's a lot of work to do. You can't do it all by yourself. I think that's kind of cool. When you start, you actually study Jewish thought. The idea was to live a good life before the Lord, have lots of kids, and just be happy in the Lord. It was a pretty simple approach. But that's the whole idea about being fruitful and multiplying. There's a lot of work to be done. But we didn't choose when we were, be, were born. We, none of us had any choice in that matter. But God chose you. God created you for destiny and purpose. And, and that's what's in there. And that's why there's a frustration in people. That's why there's a hopelessness in people because they're not experiencing it. They don't know that that's a real thing for them. It's for them. It's for us. It's for you. Paul put it this way as he explained this whole idea of mankind's purpose. Acts 17.24 God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with the men's hands as though he needed anything. And since he gives to all life, breath, and to all things, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell upon the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. So that is our place. And it is up to us, to, as it were, to grope for him and find him. He's there. He's speaking. If we'll just listen and turn our hearts to him and believe what he has said to us. That's why we honor God's word and prize it so highly. God is speaking to us. God's word is what brings life to us. God has something special for you. Do you believe that? God has something special for you. You are uniquely special to God. I know some of you don't really believe that. You think that God's reluctant to share anything and that he just, well, he just sort of puts up with you. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus, I'm reading the book called Lowly, Gentle and Lowly. The first few chapters, talk, it's all based upon Jesus' description of himself. And it's only, he only speaks of himself out of the 89 chapters in the Gospels one time and what he says of himself is that he is meek and lowly in heart he's humble he's gentle he's approachable and he wants people to come to him he is drawn to weakness he is drawn to people who are in pain and who have great need I mean the disciples didn't pick up on this like his enemies did. And you see, and we're going to get into this, he, he, there's a setup, when, and they put this guy with the withered hand right in front, like the, right, right by the front door of the synagogue. Because they know that when Jesus walks through there, he's going to see that guy. It's the Sabbath, and they're trying to set up a situation where they know that Jesus, when, as soon as he sees it, he's going to be drawn to that guy and he's going to heal him. But it's a Sabbath, and they're going to accuse him for healing on a Sabbath. See, I bring that up because that is the heart of God. You're suffering pain this morning. You are, your sin has brought hurt and sorrow. And you're overwhelmed by that pain because that's what sin does. It just brings pain into our lives. Jesus is drawn to that. He wants to fix it. He wants to relieve it. But he can't until you give him permission. He will never violate your will. Everything that we receive from heaven must be asked for. And he usually gives us a lot more after we ask, doesn't he? That's the way he is. And so we just need to understand the nature and character of God. Verse 16, moving on here. As he walked by the sea. See, this is how God unfolds his plan for us as we walk. It's day by day, moment by moment, as we are in communion with God, seeking God, walking, listening, God conscious, if you will, that he begins to reveal. 
If you will actually just ask God to guide you every day of your life, do the best you can to live for him each and every day, do what you believe God's calling you to do every day, by the end of your life, if you do that successfully day by day by day, you will, by the end of your lifetime, have accomplished God's purpose. Has Jesus walked by the sea? The sea is an idiom for the world. Has he walked in this world? As you walk in this world, it will be accomplished. Just go about your business one day at a time. It's not difficult. This isn't some ooh, mystical, spiritual thing that you've got to have this dramatic thing happen to you for you to really understand that God's got this incredible destiny for you. Well, it is incredible, and it is dramatic at times. But the revelation of it and the accomplishment is just... In some ways, we would consider mundane. What's the, I mean, he's just walking by the sea. What's so great about that? Well, it's just what God wanted him to do at that moment in time. It's the way it unfolds for you and for me. I assume that as Jesus is walking, he's in communion with his Father. And as he gets to this situation, what does he see? Simon and Andrew casting a net. I think the Lord had made known to him that these two guys were supposed to be part of his ministry team. And so he calls them. Now, I know when you read through this, and I'll try to quicken up here a little bit, you know, you kind of get the idea that this may be the first time Jesus ever saw these guys. I don't think so. He spent the first few weeks and months, I think he went back home to Nazareth. He seems to be by himself at that time when he goes into the synagogue and then they, of course they try to throw him over the hill you know stone him and throw him over the hill and he leaves right and then he goes to to the Galilee and I think he had visited that synagogue there in Capernaum which is on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee the ruins are anyway of this day and it is believed that Peter's house was next door or very close to uh, the synagogue there and so no doubt that's probably the first time that they, Jesus had seen Peter and Andrew and the family, mom, and wife, all those. He, there was an, I believe there was an acquaintance prior to this calling. And I think you can substantiate that as you read uh, through the Gospels. Sort of put things together. Uh, so it, it's the timing. It's now time for him because uh, he needs help. His ministry is expanding. People are, his fame is spreading. Needs are being met. Jesus needs help. He needs assistance. In fact, this is what he told us to pray for. We need help. My goodness, does a church need help today? This is part of how we image God. Pray to the Lord of harvest. Luke 10, 2 and 3. He said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of harvest to send forth out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. So you want to know what and how you're to image God? You're to be part of kingdom building. You're to be part of inviting other people to come into the kingdom, sharing the gospel. It's, it's not hard. It's just something we have to do. Now, he's, these guys were fishermen. He saw fishermen. He didn't see blue-collar guys. He saw, saw blue-collar guys, not white-collar guys in, in them. He wasn't causing them to be something that they weren't. They were just plain, ordinary, common people. You couldn't be any more common in that area where he was ministering out of than a fisherman. A lot of people fished. God uses plain people just like you and me. We're not special. We're just one of billions. Praise the Lord. You notice that group that he picked, they're rather a diverse group. I mean, how could you be any different, a tax collector and a fisherman? These guys hated each other. You're taking my money, bud, <laughs> you know. Nobody likes to have their money taken from them, right? Simon and Andrew, this is something I've noticed in ministry. A lot of times, families will, will be called to a certain church or ministry. You know, you've got an established relationship. You've got a, a similar way of thinking. You've got a framework that's very similar, so you, there's no introduction needed. You can, you can work together. You've lived together. You know each other. And I, think, I find that easy uh, happening over the years. I've seen it happen on, an awful lot in the churches that I've pastored. 
It's kind of cool, really. So Simon and Andrew brothers, James and John were brothers. But what I want to point out here that I think is important is that in calling them, he said, I will make you fishers of men. They, had, they were not what they were going to be. There was going to be a transformation and a behavioral change within these men. And that should give you and I hope. We're not all that God wants us to be right now. Notice their, what their response to him. Their response was immediate. They followed. They left relationships. Probably not completely, but it altered the relationships within the family. They left dad with the hired men, James and John did. They left promptly and they left completely when God called them to service. Notice too that they didn't seek Jesus. Jesus sought them. God's seeking you. God's speaking to your heart. God will show you. God will deliver you. Now, there's two things here that I want to point out, if you allow me to spiritualize here, that might help you personally find out where you belong and maybe your ministry, how you can image God. And it's the two words, two words that are used for these two sets of brothers. The first set of brothers, Peter and Andrew, says that they were casting a net. The word casting means to throw. It's the idea of action. There are some of you who are more uh, task-oriented in your f- mental framework. You don't wanna, you're a doer. You want to get something done, accomplish something. You, you feel uh, that's what you're supposed to do. You're active that way. And then there are those uh, here that are more like James and, and John. It says they were in the boat mending their nets. So we have people who cast the vision, they see something, they go for it. They're action-oriented. And then there are those that are more relationship-oriented. They want to mend things. They want to fix things. They want to fix people. (laughs) They want to help people. They're more interested in fellowshipping and, and socializing. They see the needs that people have, and they want to meet the needs. They're more, as it were, relationship oriented You need both of them in the body of Christ. How has God equipped you? Are you sort of relationship oriented? You care more about people and or do you more care seem to be more focused on what needs to be done and task oriented? We need both of them. Important thing is that you follow. You follow Jesus and let him do that. Work within you to make you what he wants us and wants you to be. And then lastly, as we've read already the Casting out of the demon. And every time we talk about this kind of thing, I know it sort of makes us uncomfortable. I don't like to, you know, make people feel uncomfortable, but there are demonic forces in this world. We're going to hit on this actually Wednesday night a bit more. We live in a physical world that's surrounded by a supernatural dimension. It is a dimension of darkness. This dimension exists between our physical realm and where God dwells there in heaven. We kind of get that picture in several passages. We see it with Elijah when the, you know, he says, Lord, open the eyes of his servant. And he sees these chariots of fire going all around him, and there's this like, battle, a war going on in, in this other dimension around him. We see it, in, as I referred to earlier in our prayer time, with Michael coming to help Daniel and give him understanding and he said I got to leave and go fight uh, or Gabriel rather go help Michael fight with the prince of Persia there's this demonic angelic realm that is in war and so Jesus ministry to the people as he came on the scene and, and your ministry is going to fit into one of these categories it was a ministry of preaching teaching 
exercising demons, healing the sick, prayer, and instructing the disciples. That's the ministry right there. That's what people need. That's what fallen people need in some way or another. And it's God's heart to help hurting people in this world. That's what it's about. He wants to deliver the needy people. And we have to exercise the authority that he's given to us for that to happen, for that to become a reality. We have to take on the mindset of Jesus. He was meek and lowly. Matthew 12, 21. 12, 20, and 21. I bruise reed, he'll not break a smoking flax. He'll not quench. Till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will trust. The Lord doesn't beat people when they're down. He doesn't stomp them when they're just about ready to have victory. Notice what Jesus did here, though. He went into the synagogue, and when he, opened, when he walked through those doors, immediately there's this huge disruption. Let's look at how deliverance takes place. There's four steps of deliverance that are given to us here. So this demon cries out. I've experienced this. I, in fact, I remember walking the last trip to Uganda, walking through the door, right to the left. This guy was going nuts. Just a major distraction. It's out of self-defense. They react. They're insecure. They realize the presence of God is there and it upsets them. He questions Jesus. He's seeking. When you ask questions in a conversation, that means you're, sometimes it's, you're seeking to control what's going on. This, the demon didn't have control, but he was seeking control. Jesus was in control. The demon was in control, but he thought he could control the situation by talking, by asking questions. Flattery didn't work. You're, you know... We know who you are. They, they'll do anything to, to maintain their position. Secondly, after crying out out of self-defense, Jesus, there's the rebuking. Literally be muzzled. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't want, nor does he desire the devil to testimi- testify about who he is. He doesn't want, and nor is he interested in them declaring anything about his person. Be quiet. It'd be an equivalent to our modern day. So, and then he commands the demon to come out. And then, there, fourthly, there was the evidence of departure. So, there's the self-defense. This usually can become real dramatic, and they start doing crazy stuff to try to intimidate you and get you off your your game, so to speak. Get you to realize you and maybe doubt whether you have the authority or not. Well, you do. And you need to know that. Don't worry about what they say. You have the authority to silence them and command them to come out. And it might get dramatic. Don't try to look beyond that. The convulsions. Why do they cry? Well, because they're going to be disembodied. He tells us in Luke eleven forty seven that these spirits go out once they've been cast out they go into arid places they're disembodied they're crying because they have failed to maintain their position and they're going to be disembodied and probably going to get beat up by their buddies for failing Jesus went into that synagogue with authority he taught as one having authority he wasn't like the the scholars the scribes. There's something different about Jesus and the people recognized it. He had authority. And the result was that they were amazed. They were startled. They were like, whoa! This is not what they expected from this rabbi. And so his ministry was very unusual. They'd never, think about this, they'd never experienced anything like this in the history from a prophet or one of their teachers. I mean, let's be honest, the world's never experienced anybody quite like Jesus. We're to imitate him only on a smaller scale. People might question you. They might challenge you. But you need to know that you have authority given by God to fulfill your mission. 
Do not draw back from it. Be bold. Go forward. It's not about you dealing, you, you know, you fumbling through life, dealing with your sins. That's been taken care of. Receive, we have received power because the Spirit of God has come upon us. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you have available to you the power of the Holy Spirit. How important it is that we live in the Spirit. Do you, you, you want to try to do it on your own? You're going to be, it's just going to be an abject failure on your part. But if you rely upon the power of the Spirit, that's what it says about Jesus. When he returned from the wilderness, he, was, he came in the power of the Holy Spirit. It says the same thing about John, actually. He returned from, he did his ministry filled with the Holy Spirit. How important it is for you and for me if we're to exercise the authority that God has given to us as we build God's kingdom is because we're going to be filled and it is because we are filled with His Spirit. And may God help you this week as we pray and end this service now. You're running on fumes. We seem to leak out the Holy Spirit as quickly as He comes in sometimes, don't we? Now is an opportunity for you to be refilled and re-energized by just asking for it. Just like forgiveness, we ask for it, we receive it. Filling of the Holy Spirit, if we ask for it, we'll receive it. So as the girls come to close us out here, let's, let's just ask God to fill us. We just need His Spirit. We need His strength. The call of God, of God is upon our lives. He's made known unto us and will make known unto us His purposes. God needs help. He wants us to be His witnesses. And for us to do that, we need the power of His Spirit. So let's, let's pray. Father, we call upon Your name, Lord. We thank You for these great, these great and precious promises. Oh, they are, they're wonderful, Lord. And we have experienced them only in part. But we're asking now, Lord, that you'd come once again and fill our cups. Not just fill us, but overflow us, Lord, with torrents of living water that our lives will be so filled with your love, your goodness, that when we speak to those outside of the faith, they'll see that it's true, a message from heaven for them, that they too can partake of what, what we've received. So, Father, we pray for an outpouring of your Spirit. Fill our cups now. Shall we stand and, and just receive from the Lord a filling of his Spirit? Come now, Lord. Touch your people. We take this moment to just lift our hearts. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, please come in the fullness of your Spirit. Fill my heart. Wash me clean. Empower me, to, Lord, to do your will. In Jesus' name.